Welcome to the Autonomy Podcast, a podcast about work, post-work, and everything in between. In these episodes, we explore the politics of work, new innovative labor policies, as well as newly emerging forms of production. We want to envisage what the future of work might be, and also what the future of work should be in our societies. You can follow Autonomy's research online at autonomy.work, or find us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date. I'm Will Strong, one of Autonomy's directors, and I'm very excited to have our two guests on today's episode, which focuses on the future of food delivery, the gig economy, and the kinds of work these things involve. Callum Kant is a PhD researcher at the University of West London, an editor of the journal Notes from Below, and a research affiliate of Autonomy's. He's just finished his first book, Writing for Delivery, Resistance in the New Economy, with Polity, which I've just finished and can highly recommend that you buy on its release. When's that coming out? October the 4th. Callum, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Also joining us today is Julian Saravo, Autonomy's resident architect and urban planner. Julian heads up Autonomy's urban research strand, Autonomy Urban, details of which you can find on our site. Julian's ongoing research engages with the gig economy and the question of alternative food infrastructures. Julian, how's it going? Very well, thank you. Okay, Callum, let's start with the model of food delivery that we have today. You've worked in the food delivery economy, you've written on it extensively. Could you give us some of the basics? Um, what is this sector? What is the business model? And who are the big players that we're talking about? Okay, so, I mean, I particularly focus on the platformized side of this economy. So obviously there is just uh, your old, although increasingly uh, less so, your old, uh, you ring up a local restaurant and they just have one driver who does all their deliveries. They'll come out and, and do those deliveries. That continues um, in a, a shrinking part of the market, but that continues much as it always had. Uh, the real transformation that we've seen over the last few years is with the platformization of an increasing amount of this work, right? So that means we've basically seen the introduction of a new technical class composition, um, which is a, a different organization of work, a different organization of um, the production of value in the sector, um, which has really kind of taken off with big platforms like Uber Eats and Deliveroo. Um, and they really are the dominant players now in this, this wider market sector. So for me, I think it's important to highlight what these platforms look like from different perspectives, right? Because obviously there are different players here, different classes at play. Um, it's important to understand how each class involved in this uh, kind of production really understands what's going on. Um, so first and foremost, from the point of view of the customer, uh, these apps um, just charge you a fee to deliver restaurant food to your home. Um, for the point of view of the restaurant owner, um, they're basically, it's a bolt-on outsourced delivery service, right? So it just takes a cut of the value of all delivery orders and in return, uh, you get the capacity to deliver to homes and also the platform will expand your, your market. Um, for the couriers, it's an app you work for which pays you to take food from restaurants to customers. Um, so it's pretty much just, you know, I mean, there's this question of self-employment which we'll return to, but it is very much like any other job. Um, for investors, um, it's primarily an app that you pump huge quantities of money into in the hope of a future speculative outcome uh, return on investment down the line. Um, and for kind of the bosses, it's a very fast growing um, technology. Uh, it's a very fast growing part of the sector, um, which might at some point have realizable value. Um, so this development really has led to uh, the massive expansion of a particular workforce. So my point of view on all this stuff, I always want to understand things from the working class point of view because you know I'm coming to these things as a Marxist. I very much want to understand how we can expand the workers' movement into the platform economy, not just you know how we understand it from a, a detached sociological point of view, but how we understand it from a political point of view. Um, and I think that it's really been the defining feature of kind of high tech class struggle of the last few years has been strikes and the struggles we've seen in platform capitalism and specifically um, with my interests in, in food delivery platforms. Great. So I think, you know, it might be useful to unpack a little bit what's different about this kind of food delivery to the traditional model that you mm -hmm. kind of started with. So 
you know, I, I used to work for Domino's Pizza. I used to be, you know, wait in the car park um, on an hourly wage, um, deliver the pizza according to like a coordinator, a manager who tell you where to go, for mm-hmm. example, normally on a screen. But nonetheless, you were told how to do things and where to go. It's quite a social experience, actually. You know, I got to know the drivers quite well. Um, what's different about the uh, delivery Uber Eats model? Um, not only in terms of in terms of the workers' experience, but also in terms of the technologies involved, who owns what, things like that. How do we how do we tease out the differences between traditional delivery, food delivery, and and this new model which we're seeing today? Okay, so first thing to say is there's actually a lot of similarities, uh, and it's important to understand there are a lot of similarities. This is not a completely new, uh, you know, fantasy organisation work which has sprung up out of nowhere. There are important similarities which we have to understand in order to really get the sector. Um, so for instance, you know, you are fundamentally doing delivery. There's often going to be like communities of riders or communities of de- uh, delivery people meeting in common spaces, all this kind of stuff. The major differences come with algorithmic management, I think. Um, so algorithmic management is really a term we use to describe when instead of having a human supervisor telling you what to do, uh, you interact with a piece of technology, in this case an app, um, which is giving you instructions on how to perform work tasks. Um, and that interaction between worker and app is really a defining feature of the way in which food platforms work. So uh, most of the time it will be an app determining, um, you know, what order is being received by whom when. There'll be an algorithm doing that kind of allocation of orders. And instead of having a human supervisor giving you instructions, telling you to work faster, the intensification of work is instead managed by uh, being paid a piece rate. So that's a, an, a rate per delivery rather than a flat hourly rate. Um, and then riders being incentivized to kind of intensify their own work by the de- like the need to make as many deliveries as possible in order to earn a decent wage. Um, there's also, you know, a number of things about the use of independent contractor status. Now, this obviously uh, undermines, you know, there is no hourly wage being paid. No one's on minimum wage. There's no guarantee you're going to make anything at all. Um, there's no provision of, of basic things like holidays, sick pay, the rest of it. Um, so this has really been a transition in the sense that um, primarily the way that value is produced has been technically recomposed to make use of this new potential for algorithmic management. That's, I think, the major definitive change. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes sense at this point to talk about the kind of resistance to this model that workers are showing, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess it's probably speaking again in this contrast between the, the traditional food delivery model and this new one, um, despite the fact, as you say, there are some similarities. We should ask the question, why... Why are workers resisting this? Why have there been a, a kind of uh, a rise in the kind of um, uh, different kind of protest demonstrations, different kind of um, demands being made upon the employer because of some kind of lack? Now, can you unpack that? Why why is there more resistance in this kind of new economy than perhaps there has been? Uh, so this is almost exactly the question with which I started the process that ended with writing for Deliveroo, the new book, um, because. Back in 2016, uh, August of 2016, there was an explosion uh, basically where a massive, um, what appeared to be totally spontaneous strike emerged in London, uh, where initially just delivery riders and then delivery and Uber Eats riders came out on strike. Um, and I was kind of working a boring desk job at the time, and I could see uh, over the internet the development of what appeared to be quite a remarkable instance of strike action. I mean, 2017 was uh, the lowest year for strike action in you know the history of <laughs> the British economy, well, since 1893 anyway. Um, when records began being collected. So it was fascinating to see amidst this general context of disenchantment, of repression, of a failure of the workers' movement to really 
root itself in the new technical composition of uh, 21st century capitalism. To see an explosion of militancy like that, I mean, it seemed almost like a throwback to a, a previous era. It looked a little bit like the 1970s, but kind of chopped and screwed and thrown forward into the 21st century. So I was fascinated and I wanted to ask all the questions that you've just asked me. And so, you know, initially I went, I went to the people involved and I started asking questions. Um, and in the process of writing an article um, about the strike, I obviously had searched deliver an Uber Eats a lot. Um, now that then made me a target for all of the advertising that they um, do in order to try and entice young people to work for the platform. Um, and this kind of put in my mind, you know, I, I needed some money. Uh, I was working a boring desk job. Uh, I wanted a political project. Um, and this idea of, of doing a workers' inquiry, which is really what the book is, this attempt to work in the sector in order to understand the sector, um, came to mind. Um, and I think the answers I found were fascinating for me because what I thought I understood about the way in which workers self-organised was largely wrong because I, I had bought the idea that this was a very decentralised sector and therefore because of the way that the technical composition had developed, because of the way that workers were decentralised and algorithmically managed, because of the fact they didn't have employee status, I believe that that would make them actually less powerful than, say, for instance, the Domino's driver that you used to be, right? right because I, thought, I guess you, we had a manager, right? We had at least a uh, kind of a boss you could point to, like within ten feet, and say, like, you're making my life a problem. I can, I can literally, you know, kind of argue with you right here and now. I guess the assumption might be that you can't do that with an app. Yeah, and also you had employment status, so you could potentially get a recognition agreement. You know, you could have a collective bargaining relationship with your manager, where you're able to, you know, organize your bargaining unit. Um, whereas this was, you know, functionally impossible uh, and still remains impossible um, for independent contractors. Um, in fact, what I discovered when I started working the job uh, was that the way that this labour process throws people together and the way that algorithmic management works creates very strong offline and online communities of riders. So you have groups of people meeting at zone centres, right? A zone centre is something built into the app so that when it's kind of downtime, this is where they want all the surplus labour to like pool together uh, so that when deliveries pick up, you can immediately be sent out to different restaurants. Now, that created basically city centre meeting points for large numbers of riders. And the thing was, the fewer deliveries you were getting per hour, so the lower your wages, the more time you spent at zone centres. Mm. Now, if you're attempting to organise a workforce, there is no better opportunity than, than lots of very pissed off workers waiting around in one place mm -hmm. discussing how little they're getting paid, right? So there was a fascinating opportunity built in there. And that was what people have been using and catalyzing around in order to build then offline, uh, online communities. So these are like WhatsApp groups, Facebook chats, Strava groups, uh, you know, every form of social media, basically, there was some kind of like riders were generating a community there. And these communities played all sorts of different functions. So I saw, you know, people um, doing things like bringing out spare lights for each other, spare batteries for each other. Um, in some cases, you know, there was a one quite unpleasant instance where in, in Brighton, where I was working, we had to use this chat to get assistance for a rider in the early stages of hypothermia. Um, but also people were doing, you know, five-a-side football or the rest of it was mm. being organized through these channels. And these channels could very quickly turn from just kind of the, the WhatsApp group that represented how an informal work group were chatting to each other online into a kind of a strike network, right? right. And these chats would then become the embryonic building blocks of the capacity to then withdraw your labor together. And so actually, invisibly, workers were highly organized because of the situation they'd been put in. And in addition, the algorithmic management processes brought in by Deliveroo through this kind of black box app, this impenetrable app, meant that workers had no commitment. They had no sense that they were being dealt with fairly. They had no sense that there was any transparency with how they were being managed. They really didn't feel like they owed the platform very anything at all, really. Mm. Um, and in addition, the app can't surveil you, right? It can't. Imagine uh, you're sitting in a kitchen and you're, you know, um, 
maybe not a, a Domino's worker, but any other, if you're in a centralized workplace and you start chatting about unions, the manager is immediately going to notice. They're going to panic. They're going to notify central management. There's going to be all sorts of processes. You might lose your job as a result of victimization. There are all these steps they can take to repress worker self-organization, which an algorithmic manager can't do. Mm, right. Mm. So there was all these circumstances were catalyzing self-organization. And that I think is why we've seen these strikes not only explode in London in 2016, but explode again and again and again and again. I mean, the rate of strike action that workers are taking in the sector is ridiculous when you compare it to the rest of the economy, right? Mm. Um, at very least, it's at l- over 50% higher, right? But it probably much higher. It's very difficult to get statistics on this stuff because obviously they're not actually official strikes. It's very hard to record. Um I mean, they obviously are strikes, but they're not they're not factored into our um, ONS data collection. So that wave of action now is really international. Uh, so it's fascinating. You look at reports from China, from Muay uh, Tan, I think it's called, which is the uh, biggest uh, delivery platform in China. Does you know millions of deliveries a day, uh, and there's constant strike activity going on to the point where food delivery drivers are one of the most militant parts of the service sector in China. Right, mm-hmm. exactly the same thing happening all over Europe. There are riders kicking off in Berlin, Barcelona, Bologna, Brussels. You can do you can do the alphabet. Right of uh, maybe Zagreb, I'm not sure. Um, of everywhere that people are kicking off in Europe, so there's really a remarkable emergence here of a transnational workers movement, and these workers are communicating with one another through the same online channels they use to communicate within their city. A, a transnational workers movement, which is militant, which is using direct action techniques, which sets its political horizon very high because there's none of the kind of traditional corporatist opportunities for kind of resolution or bargaining, um, and which is deeply antagonistic to the entire model of the sector in which these these workers are working. Mm. Now, I want to talk a little bit about precarity because you know plenty of academic discussions or even just, you know, discussions in the in the national press talk about this sector as a precarious labor sector. And maybe we can kind of characterize um different forms of labor as precarious maybe under three different kind of categories. One, uh, the hours hours might be uncertain, so you can't accept you can't really uh, expect or you can't anticipate how, how many hours you're going to be working and that means how much you're going to be earning. Um, the the actual length of contract might be, it might you still might have a contract, but it might be fairly short term. So again, it's hard to plan. And finally, maybe you might say um, there's not enough money coming in. So it's precarious because it's simply not enough to live on. Mm-hmm. Now, in your book, you make some interesting claims about precarity, about how precarity might not actually be a bad thing for workers. Um, and you kind of explain why. Could you give us a bit of a flavour of that? Okay, well, in the first instance, it's important to note that precarity is nothing new, right? Like those three forms of precarity you described have actually characterised employment for most of the history of capitalism, right? That's actually how the capitalist employment relation looks usually. Um, the brief periods where precarity has not been, you know, the, the standard condition of the working class, that's been won through through militant struggle. Uh, and it's also been, these have been narrow windows. We're mostly talking about the kind of the post-war social democratic settlement, Right. Um, you know, starting in 1945, carrying on for a bit, and then kind of getting demolished by neoliberalism progressively over time. So we shouldn't see precarity as an unusual condition, but rather as the historical norm. Um, workers are disempowered in the face of their bosses, and bosses will exploit them ruthlessly. That's not, uh, you know, that isn't a abnormal state to be overcome through careful regulation. That is the standard condition of the economy, or certainly of the capitalist economy. Um, now, that has meant 
that if anyone's interested in precarious work or organising, you have most of the most of labour history to look at, right? Uh, and I, I draw specifically upon two examples um, in the book. I talk about builders uh, and dockers as two examples of highly precarious industries where labour organisation has a strong history. Um, but you could similarly look at you know the Teamsters in the US uh, organising lorry drivers, right? There's all sorts of examples here that one could refer to. But I talk specifically about um, dockers and builders because I think it's quite illuminating the way that precarity is neither a guarantee of militancy nor or a pro- prohibition against it, right? Um, so dockers are kind of one of the classical examples. People may well know this story, the, the, the dock strikes uh, that made up the new unionism in the 18, uh, 80s and 90s. Uh, this is an example of they were fighting for the dockers' tanner, right, which is a, a set rate of pay. And these were hyper-precarious workers who would turn up to the wharves in the morning and then be told, you've got work, you've not got work. Um, there was absolutely no guarantee that you know they'd have anything to do that day. Um, there's a lot of uh, emotive stories about how a hiring hall would work as like a stampede, basically, and, and the representatives of the ships would walk along and pick workers out. Um, and the situation was dire, basically, for a lot of people, particularly in the east end of London, uh, a lot of these dockers were, were barely making a living. Now, under these circumstances, uh, there emerged a very large and powerful workers' movement. And if you really start from, you know, the, the early 20th century onwards, the dockers were a core part of the British workers' movement. So they're part of the, the Triple Industrial Alliance, um, coal workers, railway workers, dockers, um, in the, the uh, teens, uh, the 19-teens, who were um, part of, you know, one of the high points of, of British militancy um, and British working-class power and industrial organisation. So despite this apparent precarity that should logically, uh, according to the, the logics of kind of a, a liberal interpretation of this stuff, should disempower them. Um, in fact, these workers had huge power reserves because they were willing to be very militant. They weren't kind of controlled in the way that employment was controlled. And when standardization of employment began to become introduced by, by actually Labour governments, um, often it was resisted by workers because they understood that this was undermining their power to just walk out of a job, right? Um, now, on the other hand, you can look at the way that um, the building industry worked, and it was actually a Wilson government that introduced the precursor of uh, independent um, contractor status with um, the deregularization of builders through um, process of putting people on the lump, right? So they'd be getting paid. A, a, say you turn up for a job, instead of being employed by that site and um, paid in you know PAYE style or the equivalent of the 60s, um, you would be given a lump sum out of which you had to pay taxes because you were then considered self-employed, right? Now, this is the precursor of... Um, conditions that we then face in the gig economy later on. Um, in that circumstance, some of the left was like, oh, this is going to completely destroy militancy. Some of the left, um, a libertarian socialist group um, called Solidarity, were like, oh, this is actually the start of militancy. But neither were completely right. You know, like there was a big uh, builder strike afterwards, and it's not conclusively a guarantor of power or a prevention of power. Um, so for me, I think precarity is a, an interesting condition because it, it um, doesn't straightforwardly empower or disempower but it gives opportunities into which different forms of worker organisation can emerge. And it's important to recognise that if you talk to workers about, you know, what do they actually want? Often in gig economy jobs, one of the very few freedoms that workers experience in their job that they haven't experienced in previous jobs is the ability to say, I'm hungover today, I'm not going in, right? So, so often uh, you would talk to people and the key thing they wanted was control over their time and control over scheduling, right? Now that is not an endorsement of the model employed by these companies, right? Uh, anyone who reads the book will be well aware <laughs> that I'm not endorsing uh, the way that platform capitalism operates. But I think that it's important to recognise what workers do value is their capacity to retain some autonomy over how they uh, establish their routines, how they live their lives. And short-term flexibility can be really important in that, particularly with people with caring responsibilities, particularly with people with you know mental health problems. There are all sorts of 
capacities engendered by this flexibility, this precarity, which actually workers want to defend and extend rather than just overwrite. Yeah, so perhaps there's a lesson there, I guess, for the future of work that we might demand is something around flexibility, right? Mm -hmm. Flexibility isn't a bad thing in itself, um, but perhaps some kind of happy mix between flexibility and security, security of knowing your hours or your or um, income, whatever form that might take, might be some kind of um, future we might want to look at. I think that's what this sector really kind of um, brings out, actually. Julian, you've come at the gig economy from a slightly different angle, um, with a different kind of work in mind. Yeah. Um, Callum, Callum's focused on the delivery work involved, um, but you've been looking at restaurant work and cooking work and how this the food delivery economy kind of impacts on that. I know a lot of your research has been um, looking at the home, for example, and social reproduction. So... I wonder where's this where's this all going? Where's the sector going? Where's what's Deliveroo's end game? Um, and how do you see um, how do you see it evolving? So right now we're seeing a very interesting shift for the past year or two. Um, Deliveroo particularly uh, has has been shifting to to uh, something called dark kitchens, um, and these are locations. Um, in which meals are cooked, uh, but they are detached from restaurants, from actual floors where customers eat. Um, and they will usually be uh, rented in, uh, they, they will be usually be spaces in um, low rent locations, um, say like uh, in the industrial yards um, mm -hmm. often. Um, right, so... If until recently Deliveroo has owned and managed day only data, while uh, their riders um, were were actually owning um, their own means of pr production, uh, right now we're seeing Deliveroo shift into bricks and mortar, so which is a form of fixed cap capital. So this is a this is a this is a new thing. Uh, and it's and it's happening across across the gig, gig, gig economy. We're mm -hmm. seeing it. We're seeing it happen with Uber, mm -hmm. who is teaming up with Volvo uh, to make a fleet of cars, mm -hmm. driverless cars, right? driverless cars. Sorry, um, we're also seeing it with Airbnb, just starting to build its own um, its own its own sort of apartment hotels. Mm -hmm. I guess mm -hmm. we we could um, we could call them. Um, so this is a shift from from just. So this is a shift from uh, from just having, let's say, a mediating infrastructure uh, to actually owning uh, and having the risk associated to owning fixed forms of capital. Uh, so this is very interesting. Now, the thing is that the dark kitchens actually they they. They are a very advantageous model for the restaurants involved. Um, they're sort of getting involved in in uh, with platform d delivery services. Um, Why is be that? Well, because the risk associated to having a restaurant on a high street is huge. Right? You you have to make sure that 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 space is full of paying customers every evening mm -hmm. um now that that need uh is 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 no longer there in the moment um in which in which all you have is a k k kitchen making as many meals as p people are asking for in their mm -hmm. own homes 
So um, the rent is probably lower of the kitchen. You haven't got staff costs in terms of waiters. So you have no waiters. Um, you you have very low rents. Um, Deliveroo just take like a, a like a percentage of your profits. But Deliveroo that, are taking a huge percentage of their profits, mm-hmm. something up to like forty five percent. But this is still this still beats the the median two hundred and fifty thousand uh, pound investment that a restaurant needs to make right. in London. And Deliveroo know this very well. They have drafted a response to uh, the London plan um, in which they are basically framing this as incubators and startup spaces for the food industry, right? Mm-hmm. So they are they're doing this sort of on an in innovation basis. This is sort of how they're arguing it to cities um so, now so basically a startup will turn up with its chef and its ingredients yeah basically if you if you are franco manca all you have to do is t- turn up uh with your chef and your ingredients uh the k- 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 kitchen is already there for you um everything is set up uh you don't have to deal with any landlords except for deliveroo they've already uh gotten permission for smells for noise you don't have to worry about anything right so it's a what we could call a plug and play infrastructure um so so this represents a very sort of risk averse model uh and in a moment in which all these big chains that we were used to that started emerging in the late 90s byron uh gourmet burger jamie's italian um, they're really struggling right now, right? Because their model was to basically um, buy up a lot of square meters on all the high streets in the UK. Uh, and now that they're being hit with uh, business rates, higher business rates, uh, tougher controls on migrant labor. Um, people having the, less disposable, disposable income. People having less disposable income. And, you know, just... It's also the tastes in the UK have changed. People are a lot more, they, they look for very particular experiences. So actually what, what, what you're seeing emerging right now is, is places like food halls where you'll have sort of young, hip um, cuisines coming up. Um, Lots of avocado. Yeah, <laughs> Lots of avocado, I mean, yeah. it's a sort of very experience-based mm. uh, economy. Uh, and, and, some, and places like Jamie's, Italian weren't going to cut it anymore. So what you're saying, when we look at food halls like Mercato Metropolitana, but also the dark kitchens that Deliveroo are bringing in, which you've just detailed, they're basically getting rid of service work, right? They're kind of waiters coming to tables. That's true. That's true. They're also changing the way uh, food workers um, experience their workplace. Um, because these are spaces of which are autonomous from restaurants, from, let's say, the spaces in which clients are eating. Uh, The spatial conflict between a kitchen and a floor, which defines restaurants, is no longer there, right? So you no longer have um, staff pushed to the back of of a restaurant's location in the darkest, stinkiest part um, let's say all in the interest of creating uh, uh, 
an ambiance uh, or an ambiance or an experience um, for your patrons, right? So, so, so there is a sort of newfound autonomy for um, for workers, which is something that in 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 the sort of very few and informal interviews that I had with food workers on these sites, that was something they cherished very much. Also, the fact that there there were no managers on site mm-hmm. that was also. Uh, a very important, a very important factor. Mm-hmm. Um, the people I spoke to, they were mainly Italians making pizza. That's that's sort of the main people I was interviewing. When <laughs> I went there. So I can't say I have a, I have a, I have a very sort of wide sensitive sample of all <laughs> the restaurants. <but laughs> probably makes up fifty percent yeah, of the UK exactly, delivery market. Right, exactly. Right. Um, and uh, the people that I interviewed, they more than one mentioned the fact uh, that they would t- turn up late for work and they would leave early mm-hmm. and they would take many, many cigarette breaks. So I, I th- there, that those are all things that I found, uh, that I found very interesting. The other thing, um, that I found was that Deliveroo has no idea how to build kitchens, right? Like none. Um, and the actual dimensions of the, the actual the- dimensions. Um, I remember one of these cooks telling me that he kept hitting his head on the shelves because somebody had just like, the wrong design. Place. Yeah. <laughs> he just gets okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hitting his head again. But the the design of these spaces and the, I guess the, the the very fact these spaces exist also affords certain other um, certain other things, right, Callum? There's in your book in your book you talk about uh, dark kitchens and how they've been used also as a, as a means of leverage uh, when workers are making demands. Yeah. So in uh, one of the strikes uh, I was involved in supporting in Brighton um, over basically hourly, uh, well, demanding higher wages. Um, there was a remarkable incident where, so this strike, as many of them were, was just called by one WhatsApp group made up of primarily migrant riders. And they just decided, all right, we're not going to do deliveries this evening. I think there was like two days notice. And they pulled up and had a huge picket um, right in the center of Brighton, down by the pier, um, where they were just stopping everyone who went past, uh, all the delivery riders who went past, pulling them over and telling them, you know, stop doing deliveries now. We're, We're stopping, we're striking for a higher wage. And whilst this was going on, I mean, I thought it was very impressive anyway. Um, I wasn't working for Deliveroo at the time. I just stopped and I was kind of there as a supporter. I was chatting to people and I was like, oh, this is really impressive. Do you think we're having an impact? Um, And some of them were like, yeah, 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 we're definitely having an impact. Have you seen what happened at the dark kitchen? I was like, what? And they would actually sent a flying picket up. There's a dark kitchen in kind of the middle of Hove. um, And they'd sent uh, a group of riders up there to immediately stop production there. They turned up, um, basically banged on the door and been like, there's a strike on. Uh, and either out of um, support or concern over whether any of their deliveries would actually go out, the, the workers inside had immediately walked out. Right, So immediately workers understood that this location, of the creation of these points of fixed capital investment lends them potentially huge leverage. Right, mm-hmm. um, This is the same thing as when you look at a car factory. Why did car workers have leverage? Because there was a huge amount of fixed capital mm-hmm. operating. And if they could shut that down with their activity, then they would gain a huge amount of power. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly the same dynamic operating. So uh, as you can see, uh, particularly in places like London, this is really where the dark kitchen model has reached its, uh, its high point. There's an increasing concentration of capital on very easily blocked points. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the IWW in London actually has experimented with this. It's unfortunately after the period uh, that the book covers, but they recently had a series of blockades where they were deliberately targeting and shutting down dark kitchens because they knew there were five or six located within a very small area mm-hmm. and now this uh, to use logistics speak for a minute it's the, the movement really from a decentralized network where you have points of origin and points of terminus kind of scattered all over the map um, into a hub and spoke network so it goes from you know something that uh, resembles just a complete mess on a map to a, a neatly organized having center um kind of 
set of things, right? This is how deliveries go out from a central point to various points, but they start at a central point in the same way that maybe like a, a delivery network reliant upon a warehouse does, right? Now, that those warehouses, those points of concentration become huge points of leverage and workers understand this through their experience of the labor process and use those and target them. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's very interesting that kind of the, develop mo- the developmental model that companies like Deliveroo and Uber Eats are looking at potentially involves significant investment in these spaces mm. because mm. these spaces appear to have the primary effect of giving workers way more leverage and also creating, in exactly the same way I said earlier, you know, zone centers created informal spaces for workers to meet and discuss. Mm. Well, the zone center can be replaced by the dark kitchen. It has exactly the same mm-hmm, function. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, you're actually bringing together restaurant workers and delivery workers mm. there. So there's a potential, and then presumably, you know, these things carry on growing and they continue investing in them. Security guards as well, mm-hmm. right? You're creating- I was, was going to say, actually, because you, in the book, you talk about sometimes the antagonistic nature of having restaurant floor managers with mm-hmm. the riders who are coming into the restaurant. Yeah. So they're like, can you wait outside? We don't want you near our customers, things like that. So I guess with a dark kitchen, you can kind of walk up right up to the door and say, you know, t- talk to the get access to those workers much much more much easier although um in their response to the london plan deliveroo are adamant that uh they will discipline the workforce and they're actually very explicit about it and as you, you just mentioned security guards we're going to see a lot more of those on site right. uh making sure that riders don't spend too long there um making sure they don't make any noise uh making sure they don't familiarize too much with each other. I think this is very interesting because in all of these models, we're seeing kind of a displacement of supervisory labor, right? So the dispatcher who told you where to go as a Domino's driver is no longer exists and is mm-hmm. automated. Mm-hmm. But what they're realizing is when you, when you automate some of these um, organizational functions, what you can't automate is the supervisory disciplinary function, right? And so there really is an incentive to now introduce new forms of discipline in order to crack down on workers who've been given freedom from supervisors, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. there is a significant possibility here that workers having been taken out from under the heel of like a foreman right have an opportunity to to form new organizational units and to really push forward the struggle mm-hmm. and i think they're realizing they have to invest in some kind of like concrete infrastructure to oppose it i mean the problem here it strikes me that a layer of, of agency security guards might well be easily won round. I mean, they're more likely to be um, migrant workers of the same nationalities as the people doing these deliveries from those restaurants. They're likely to have a lot of pre-existing potential ties. Like, they're drawn from the same layer of the working class. That it's seemed quite possible to me that um, that won't be a successful gambit. But I think you're right to say an increasing securitization, authoritarian management mm-hmm. of the workforce is likely here because there is absolutely no intention as far as we can tell for any kind of compromise deal right mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, it's mm-hmm. not as if um deliver actually continue to cut wages and cut wages and cut wages they're now at the lowest they've ever been in the uk mm-hmm, right i mean mm-hmm. this is not entirely transparent because a lot of it's based on it's calculated per delivery now rather than just a, i used to be paid a flat four pounds per delivery now they have like a distance multiplier and there's a new uh, minimum rate that's changed every month and it's all uh, intentionally obscured um, partially for the purposes of preventing people being classified as employed, partially for the purposes of confusing workers about what they're actually getting paid for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But there is no intention, I, I think, if you are someone like Will Shue or Dan Warren, uh, Will Shue's the CEO, Dan Warren's the UK and Ireland operations manager. If you ask them, do you intend to you know, recognise a trade union, come to a bargaining agreement, will there be kind of the stable corporatist agreement um, that we saw in you know the post-war period? No, there won't be, partially because these platforms aren't really profitable enough to have an agreement Mm. where they're giving away a large part of their profits Mm. to um, the workers that actually do the work.
So I guess in the last part of the show, I think it'd be interesting to talk a little bit more about the longer term future of this stuff. So in your book, you set out four possible futures. I'm sure there's, there's many more, but four kind of general categories of future you kind of set out. One is fully automated food delivery. One is progressive futurism. One is platform cooperativism. And one is platform expropriation. I wonder if you could kind of go through them fairly briefly and then we can kind of talk about some of the problems that actually these platforms might encounter as they try and develop and also perhaps we might encounter if we want to develop alternatives. So this really, uh, the first one, uh, fully automated food delivery, really links onto what Julian said earlier about this increasing investment in fixed capital. Basically, Deliveroo um, in a 2018 presentation to investors said, uh, you know, we want to um, cut the costs of food production. Um, we want to fully automate food delivery with these kind of little autonomous robots that toddle along. We want to automate the making of most food and get rid of the chefs entirely. Uh, and once we've slashed costs, the rate of, you know, everyone's going to be able to eat delivery meals all the time. Uh, so the, our sales are going to shoot through the roof. And then a network of these dark kitchens kind of every two miles throughout the city will be totally autonomous and running all the time, uh, just producing and distributing food everywhere. And this is kind of the future of, of food. Now, it's debatable whether they actually believe this or not. It may well be a fairy tale told to stop investors panicking that, you know, when are you going to become profitable? Um, mm-hmm. They might well have... Okay, can we just hold on that one second? We didn't actually cover this, but can you tell us exactly why, why are they not... Why are they just about profitable or not becoming profitable? What's, their, what's the business model which is actually quite precarious for them? So platforms basically exist in their current form, particularly geographically tethered, these kind of service platforms, so you're looking at Uber or whatever. Uh, they primarily exist, I think, because of we're in a period of very low returns on capital. Um, and they are innovative and appear to propose a new business model. Uh, and so huge amounts of venture capital have flooded into the sector before there have been any kind of business results to to prove this. So you see, when these companies are now coming to, you know, IPOs, you look at WeWork, the recent WeWork IPO was an example, or even, you know, Uber's IPOs, all of these processes are revealing that there may actually not be a productive core to these platforms. They may be like pure... Um, spectacle with no real depth. They're not mm-hmm. really exploiting labor in an effective way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's potentially a problem. I mean, Uber Eats is an interesting one. U- Uber claims that Uber Eats is more profitable than Uber taxi drivers. Um, and I can see that in mature markets, so you know, big cities like London, these these platforms might be profitable. But Delivery, for example, recently pulled entirely out of Germany. They just pulled out of an entire country. Right. Um, now that was that was you know presumably over profit questions of profitability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think. If Deliveroo, with all of its venture capital, is not continuing to expand at a ridiculous rate, that implies they have some serious concerns about profitability. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is why they might be trying to automate these processes to keep labor costs down or even eliminate labor costs entirely. Indeed, yeah. So they, they understand their model has to change if they're going to get returns, and they think they're going to do this by massively reducing the cost of production and delivery. Um, it's also, I mean, it's interesting to note, there's all sorts of questions here, not only about change management, like does this company have the wherewithal to run physical real estate infrastructure, uh, you know, all over the UK and the world? Like I, I, they don't have that experience at the moment. It would be a massive transformation for a company. I mean, that is a huge, huge transition. Um, so it's not only questions of change management. There's also a question of does the technology exist? One of the people may have seen, uh, there's these uh, Kiwi um, robots on UC Berkeley's campus that kind of roll all over the campus and deliver burritos to students in the library and stuff. Um, and these are quite a popular uh, example of what, what the kind of technology delivery is supposed to be using in the future for their autonomous food delivery. And they are presented as fully autonomous. Um, 
the really remarkable thing is that actually it's recently emerged that most of these things are actually run by uh, workers in Colombia on $2 an hour at, at setting the GPS tracks for these little robots that roll apparently autonomously um, around the UC Berkeley campus, right? So right. a lot of this technology doesn't exist to operate on scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, if that did, you know, if that kind of model exists in the UK, it would just be the transition of geographically tethered service work um, so the kind of, you know, standard being a delivery courier, that would just be turned into the kind of platform work that we see with uh, things like TaskRabbit or whatever mm-hmm. that's outsourced to the Global South, which is currently these workers primarily do things like training algorithms or mm-hmm. whatever, but they may just in the future drive delivery robots from, you know, thousands of miles away. Mm-hmm. So the technology, there's really a question whether it exists or not. But that is um, their current model. I think another model, um, which is kind of designed in concert with the industry and, and kind of not, is what I've called progressive futurism. Uh, so this is a guy, Tim O'Reilly, who is a, it's important to state right at the top, um, he writes uh, as a progressive, um, but he is a Silicon Valley venture capitalist and CEO. I mean, he's not, you know, uh, he's not a nice guy in terms of the class struggle. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he really talks about all these potential reforms where he has these ideas of kind of noodling around the edges. And, you know, he, he draws a global analysis from the conditions of, and the regulation of the US labor market, which is obviously just like farcical. Um, and basically attempts to come up with a series of proposals about how we can kind of integrate flexibility um, with the development of um, uh, the platform economy going forward. And I think comes up with absolutely nothing. So it's really important that at the moment, there are very few viable reformist ways out of this, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the opportunities for compromise, like I said, the corporatist settlement is not coming back in this particular part of the sector. It may come back in other, you know, actually profitable parts of the capitalist economy, but in this sector, at least, mm. it is not coming back. Because the stakes are so high, both for the for, for delivery of the companies and also you know workers are, are, are on very low wages they also are getting um you know they're, they're kind their of capacity up to survive what, is threatened exactly yeah, yeah. so uh, on both sides the stakes are very high so progressive futurism i think uh, basically amounts to some hand waving of a slightly uncomfortable ceo who realizes that people are being driven to starvation but isn't actually prepared to do anything about it then we have platform cooperativism now i think this is probably one of the most prominent left reformist suggestions uh, it's suggested by uh, you know people like trebosh golds who are you know doubtless on the right side of history to a degree but i, th- I disagree with them on this issue we but- talk about you know things like khan's cars people once mentioned having like a london version of uber perhaps exactly so the idea is because i mean in some instances um this is a, a better idea than others but basically because workers already provide the means of subsistence they already own the bicycles and the mopeds and the things they need to do a lot of the delivery work all that needs to be done in order to turn them into cooperatives and have like common ownership of the means of production is just to um, take the app under public ownership. That's all you need to do. As soon as you take the app into kind of workers' hands, then uh, suddenly the sector is supposed to transform. Now, the problem here is if they're still competing on an open market, they're going to get absolutely screwed, right? Like you can imagine a cooperative setting up and they're attempting to compete with Deliveroo in London. Deliveroo is just going to slash uh, the rates it charges customers, maybe reduce the rates it charges restaurants. Um, and increase what it pays drivers until it incentivizes and destroys the competition because they're very good at destroying competition. At one point um, in Amsterdam a couple of years ago, there were eight of these platforms operating at the same time just trying to destroy each other, right? They have venture capital. They're very good at destroying competition and they're willing to turn a loss, right? You can't compete with the fact that they will turn a massive loss in order to dominate the market. So the only outcome of this, if they were in kind of open market competition, would be auto-exploitation where workers would have to set their wages lower and lower and they'd be relying basically on ethical consumption um, in order to even have a market share, right? Probably not a viable strategy. No, I don't think it's a viable strategy at all. And so whilst I agree uh, absolutely with the impulse to, you know, take workers control over the means of production that's definitely not the way we get there especially if we're operating in a period of a, an open market 
So what's the way out of that? Well, one potential solution that a cooperative um, supporter might suggest would be, well, we need to stop kind of open market competition then. If this is the thing we want, then we've got to, you know, restrict um, at what price uh, you can do deliveries in a, food deliveries in a city, right? Now, my argument is, if you've got the political will and capacity to introduce restrictions like that, where you're putting price controls on food delivery in order to control the market, you probably have something like the political will required for a much more ambitious and much more aggressive strategy of something that I'd like to call platform expropriation, right? Which is basically, I think we should look at these platforms and understand their entire model has been premised on hyper-exploitation, right? They're not, Mm -hmm. uh, even by the very low standards of legitimacy of a capitalist economy, they are not like highly legitimized by the public sphere, right? People don't view them as treating workers well and, and being respectable companies which contribute, right? They're understood to be dodging their taxes, to be misclassifying people, to be ruthlessly exploiting um, a layer of the working class which is highly precarious and, and reliant upon informal work. Now, we should take the opportunity and say, you know, these platforms have, you know, Wilshoe, for example, has done very well off Deliveroo, um, but actually you just no longer own it. It's now we're going to take it out of ownership. So that's mean we're going to take control of the data centers. We're going to take control of the dark kitchens. And we're going to re-employ uh, or, or bring all this under the ownership of the current tech workers and the people working in the dark kitchens and the people who are doing the deliveries. And actually, we just want to run this as a public utility as part of a, a program like Universal Basic Services, right? Mm-hmm. So we want to run a food delivery program for the public good, for social use value and not uh, for the production of the capitalist form of value for for profit, right? And this is bankrolled by the state, and therefore, kind of to some extent, taken out of like a market competition. Yeah, I think I think this should be part of a wider transition where we attempt to decommodify the fundamental means of subsistence and decommodify access to the means of subsistence, mm-hmm. so Taking that everyone food. is guaranteed food. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the UCL report, um, the the UBS report, I think 2017, um, did factor in a, a cost for this, and they talked about a variety of delivery options, including like food boxes. Uh, and including delivery options, I think we should be very serious about thinking about what is the social use value of this. Because fundamentally, you know, when I was working at delivery, what did I, what were the good parts of it, right? You know, you didn't have a supervisor. We've talked extensively about algorithmic management. But one of the other benefits was when you delivered food to people who were clearly very grateful to have food turn up at their door, that is a, a moment of care that, you know, really does matter. You know, if, you're, if you turn up and it's a single parent who looks really exasperated and they're, they're having a very difficult evening, I would love to, you know, giving them food felt like a good thing to do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And at the moment, there is such need. We have an aging population, right? And a Meals on Wheels uh, provision, which has got absolutely decimated by austerity. Mm-hmm. So there's a clear need here for just mm-hmm. fundamental provision in terms of compassion, care to an increasing portion of the population, which is very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And one could well imagine, you know, um, your grandparents, right? Your grandparents at home would you want your grandparents to have access to as part of a UBS, the capacity for someone to come and deliver them a hot meal so you know they're eating well, um, to then, you know, them come in and have a 10-minute chat, La Poste, the uh, the French mm-hmm. postal service already does this when you do deliveries. You can pay for them to have a 10-minute chat and a cup of tea with your granny. Like, imagine we could do that with food. Well, I think, to be honest, that's a, a really significant potential contribution to human well-being. Mm-hmm. And most workers understand that this is the core of what they're actually doing. It's not about delivering sushi to high-paid you know city executives that's not even a that's a quite a small part of the overall business anyway this is mostly about attempting to solve a crisis of reproduction through delivery and i think that we have to set a kind of more utopian horizon here about what do we actually want to do there are thousands of people working on our streets in all weathers to go and take food from person from kitchen to person right do we want to be doing that so the fundamental point of it is produce social use value or do we want to be making 
Uh, can I say dickheads? I can say dickheads, can't I? Do we want to be making dickheads like Will Shoe richer and richer? Right, that's fundamentally the choice, and that that feeds into the wider political choice that I think we're faced at the moment, where really this struggle is not just about conditions in one sector. This is about how do we reorganise society. We are facing a series of crises, climate crises being only one of them, right? Um, antibiotic resistance, the rest of it, we need to fundamentally reorganize the way in which we reproduce ourselves and we reproduce society. And this, I think, is a way into those questions because here in kind of like the technical furnace, the front edge of platform capitalism, workers are really struggling and fighting for something better. And there is a political opportunity to drive platform expropriation as the solution and not only the solution for this sector, but platform expropriation should become general expropriation, a general provision of universal basic services and a general decommodification of the means of life. Callum, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Julian, thank you very much too. Thank you. You've been listening to the Autonomy Podcast. You can find all episodes of the podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for tuning in and see you next time. <laughs>